if you have a Bible, um, open it up to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And then for the last time, um, before we move on to verses 5 and beyond, uh, let's read Colossians 1 through 4 one last time. Pray and talk about this. Because I told you, like, what, what we've been saying over and over and over again is unless you understand who you are in Christ, you will never get verses 5 and beyond. You just will never understand it. And it will be unattainable to you and not sustainable. So you have to get this first. So you have to get this. Colossians verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. If then is a huge statement. Underline that in your Bible. If then you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Lord, um, I just confess right away, I desperately need your help with this. I I. I confess that um, there might be people in this room that I'm using words that are biblical words, but they might not understand them. I pray um, the simplicity of the gospel would come through still. Pray that we'd grasp it, our hearts would grasp it, and we would together drive the truth of what Christ has done, who Jesus is, deep, deep, deep in our souls and it would be the truest thing about us, God. Help us to follow you. Would you go before us and teach us? We submit ourselves under your word. We don't submit under um, the teachings of a man. We want the teachings of God today. So would you please help us? Help me, Lord. I, I need your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we've been talking about identity the last several weeks. We started this series right after Easter. And uh, what we've been saying is what we tend to do as, as people is we tend to find our identity in uh, one of three places, or actually a, 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 a compilation of these three places. We find our identity in what we do often. And this is the easiest one because what we do sometimes is what we do most of our life because we work and we have careers. And what we do, we do with probably 50, 60 hours a week sometimes. So we are, I am my work. We begin to define ourselves by our work. I am my work. I am my art. I am what I produce or whatever. It's, it's who we are. We also find ourselves by what we have, what we consume, what we've been handed, things maybe out of your control, things that you've been handed, your looks, maybe some, even some shortcoming that you've been given. And we define ourselves by these. We also define ourselves by what we desire. I am what I desire. I am what I love. I am what I what I want. I'm free to be whoever I want to be, and then whoever I want to be that day, whatever my desire is, that's who I am. And that's where we find our identity. So we've been talking about this idea, this concept of identity for the last several weeks. And today I want to, I want to uh, make a bit of a confession, but also a bit of an explanation as to why we're doing this series. What brought this entire series to, to reality, no, no pun intended there, um, was I was noticing uh, several things about our young church, very young church, that alarmed me as a pastor. And it, namely, it was this. A lot of people in our community, in this church, who are following Jesus, or 
you know, just started following Jesus or recommitted their lives to Christ or otherwise, a lot of the people in our community looked a lot like people who were not following Jesus. And what I mean by that is this, there are quite a bit of people in our church that have the same view of money as everyone else in the city and the same view of power and sex and dating as everyone else, the same thoughts on drinking and love and friendship and even God as every other person in the city. So there is no distinction at all in this community when you walk into this church. Now, I know I'm not trying to be defeatist. I'm not trying to be like this. I'm not trying to be a bummer right now. I know that we are very, very, very young church, just 17 or something, 17 months old. And we hit, we had a bit and we have had a bit of a growth spurt from the time we opened our doors. And that comes with a whole set of problems as well. And I know that church planting is messy and ministry is messy and living in community together is messy and following Jesus is messy. I know it's messy because I've been a Christian now for 16 years and it's been very messy. So I know this, but I want you to, I want you to listen. If you don't go to church at all, you would, you would agree with this as well. If it is true what Jesus says about the church that, and even what our secular society, even if you don't go to church, you probably believe this about the church as well, that the church should be, there should be the strange otherness about the church. Everyone believes that. If you don't go to church and you're here, you're like, I kind of expect if this is a church, there should be some strange otherness about the church. I want to read you Ephesians uh, five. I know that you guys probably have read this in um, thinking about like marriage and stuff, but let me let me read to you and and what it says about the church and about Jesus. Verse twenty five: Husbands, love your wives. Okay, but then it draws this comparison. This is how you're to love your wives, as Christ loved the church. Now listen to what Christ has done to the church. He's loved the church. He gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify, that is set apart the church. So the church is to be this, this movement in the city, this presence in a city or in a place that's set apart, that's a bit sanctified, that's different. Sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might, Jesus might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives. So what it's saying here is that Jesus loves the church, died for the church, and then set the church apart to be sanctified. And you might not know what that word means. It means like set apart, holy. And this is what Jesus desires for the church. I mean, everyone think about this for a second. Someone who just walks in off the street if you don't go to church at all, you come right into this church, any church. It doesn't want to, it to be full of people that use money and sex and power and authority as everyone else either. Everyone agrees with that. Everyone does. If you go to church or not, you're like, I go to church, I don't expect them to use power the same way as the world uses power or sex the way the whole world, the, the rest of the world uses sex or money the rest of the, but I don't want them to be self-righteous either. And Jesus says, that's what I desire for the church as well. They expect a certain level of otherness, might even say holiness in the church. There should be in the church what the Bible calls, and it might sound strange, but the Bible calls it the aroma of Christ. 
the essence of Jesus that permeates his church. There should be this solidarity with Jesus. This We should smell, even if you hate the smell or the look of Christ, the church should still reflect Jesus and smell like Jesus, and we should look like Jesus. I mean, we're a community who claims to follow Jesus. And so, I know this is very hard to listen to. It's very hard to say. So it must be hard to listen to, maybe. And so as we're praying through this, I was praying through this as we were closing up the book of Mark and talking about Jesus for the first several, you know, year and a half of the church or something, whatever, a year and a couple months of the church. Praying through this, I just, I just couldn't do what other churches a lot of us grew up in did. And that is, I couldn't get up here and just tell you what to do and what not to do. I couldn't just get up here and just use this mic, which was, you know, like, we'll come and get you, by the way. Um, use this mic to, and use this stage to just blast you with all of these things like, stop getting drunk, stop using people, stop, stop, stop. You know what? That never works, ever. It didn't work for me. And I know for some of you, it didn't work for you either. That's why you live in San Francisco. I've heard your stories. So what's the biblical model for transformation? I think most of us could agree in here that if you follow Jesus, there should be this model of transformation. There should be, you should be changed into the image of Jesus. You should look and reflect, have the mercy and the compassion and the love and the openness and the holiness of Jesus. You should have all these things if you're following Christ, but how do we do all of this? What's the model of transformation? How does God transform us? How does God transform the individual or an entire community? How do we as a church change to become more like Jesus whom we follow? Uh, the, the scholar N.T. Wright in his book, After You Believe, the book that we recommended that you would get during the study, you could pick it up downstairs, says that, there are two main options for how human behavior is normally seen. Two ways that we go about changing our behavior, looking at behavior, and there are these. Either you obey the rules, he says, quote, either you obey the rules imposed from the outside, or you discover the deepest longings of your own heart and try to go with them. So those are the two ways that we try to live. We either obey the rules imposed on us from the outside. And some of us think that once we start following Jesus, there's all these rules now that are imposed on you from the outside. You can't do this and you must do that and you can't do this. And we try to live up and live into these rules. But some of us, a lot of us, probably most of us in here, we go after the deepest longings of our own hearts. Now, most of us want that second option. You're probably thinking, please, pastor, say that we're supposed to do the second. That would be way more fun if we got to do that. But think about this. What happens when we go after the deepest longings of our souls? What happens when we are free to, to take in whatever our hearts desire, every single thing our hearts desire, and we're, we're able to go after the deepest longings of our soul? What happens when we go after these things in our hearts? We all know this always happens. Chaos happens. Chaos. Complete chaos this happens in banking, and it puts us in something like the financial crisis that we find ourselves in right now. It happens in sports with drug abuse, relationships with infidelity, politics with its corruption, maybe even like your own diet left to eat whatever you want to eat, or maybe your first Visa card, if you remember that. My first Visa card was a disaster. 
I'm like, I have money? You're giving me free money? This is awesome. And I would, and, and what happens after you're allowed to do what your heart wants to do for a while? You always know this. You impose, you have to impose rules and regulations after that. Okay, we need some rules here. We need some rules. We need some ground rules. We insist that there may, must be rules and there must be regulations on banks, on sports, on relationships, on politicians, and even our own spending habits. But rules never work either. Rules either make us prideful when we do everything right or when we fail, rules are just that big, fat, I told you so. Rules might point in the direction of right behavior, but rules can't transform you. Listen, rules can't transform you. Rules can't generate a deep-rooted character in you. See, rules can say this. Rules can say you can't sleep with someone who's not your spouse. That's a rule. But rules can't teach you dignity. Rules can't teach you to treat a person you're dating as a child of God that he or she is, to respect their mind and their soul and their body and know that she or he wasn't made for your 15 minutes of pleasure, but for the glory of God. Rules don't develop that deep within you. Rules can say something like you should tithe. But rules can't teach you that everything that you have is God's. And he desires to use every resource you have to bless others because he has used every resource in his disposal to bless and redeem you. See, following the deepest longings of our heart hardly ever works. And it hardly ever works well. And it's never good enough to solve real problems. And we know rules don't work either. So how do we change? How do we change then? Our first instinct when I say, or anyone says, well, how do you change? We, 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 we kind of want to construct rules. Our, our first instinct, we want to change. We want to do something to change. We, we think activity will change. So, okay, then let me do something. I'll get a list of disciplines, and I'll start knocking all of them out. And when I get a list of disciplines, that's how change will happen. But that's not where the Bible starts. Now, I... I Again, going back to what I said at the very beginning, I kind of want, I kind of want to list out seven rules that this church will have, but that won't do anything. The 13 people that are left in our church that obey the rules will just be these Pharisees that are walking around condemning everyone. They'll start grabbing signs and they'll start picketing and Union Square. That's what will happen. And the rest of you will say, that's why I never go to church. But this, here's the deal. I'm not saying it because people will leave. I'm saying it because it's not biblical truth. The Bible doesn't go, doesn't say, once you believe, then in order to be in, you have to obey by these rules. The Bible actually takes a whole different posture altogether. When we believe, the, the way the New Testament addresses this kind of metamorphosis, transformation from the inside out, it's a bit more messy than I would like. But it is a change nonetheless. And it's like this. The Bible shows you who you are in Christ. It shows you your identity, the truest thing about you. The Bible starts with Jesus and then who you are in Jesus. And this is what Colossians 3 is getting at. This is what Colossians 3 is all about. You have been raised with Christ. If you have been raised with Christ, you, have a, you are a new create, 
creation. You are a new creature. You've been raised with Christ. You died to your old self. You have, you have new life in Christ. Now, some of those words might be foreign to you. You're like, die to my old self? What does that even mean? That's so weird. I, it sounds weird, I know. But let me try to explain this to you. And this is what I've been trying to explain to you, actually, for the last four weeks. And I've said basically the same thing for the last four weeks. I just say it in a different way because I really, really want you to get it before we move on. And this is what I want you to want to say. God transforms you. God transforms you. He changes you by first changing you positionally. He changes your position. And this is how. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new, she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is an indicative statement, something that has been indicated about you, something that has been declared about you, a fact, a truth about you. You are, if you're in Christ, you are recreated in the image of Christ. Your old identity has passed and is gone. Your past has passed. Your old life that was apart from God has passed. Outside of the favor of God and the presence of God that has passed, a new life has come. New has come in. A new identity has come in. A new life has come in. A new future has come in. How is this all possible? How does God do this? This is how. A little further along in 2 Corinthians 5, it says this, verse 21. For our sake, God made Jesus. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now you have to drive this, drive this deep, deep, deep in your heart. For our sake, Jesus was made to be sin. It wasn't that Jesus was made a sinner. Jesus, it means that Jesus took the wrath and the penalty and the separation and the punishment that our sin afforded that we deserved. God treated Jesus as if he was your sin cross so that he can treat us as if we were his righteousness god treated jesus as if he was your sin so that now when you're in christ he can treat you as if you were his righteousness last week we talked about this word justification it's a very biblical word i understand that basically we said this it, the sunday school answer is this normally Justification means justified never sinned. And that's true, but it's not completely true. It's also this. Justify had already completed a perfect life. That's what justification means. It means you were born in a perfect birth. You lived a perfect life. You died a perfect death. You stood before God. That's what happens when you get Christ's righteousness. God treats you and sees you once you receive the forgiveness and the sacrifice of Jesus as if you lived a perfect life. Jesus' life has been given to you and you must get this first before you begin to move on to now what do I do? Because if you don't get this, you'll think that what you do allows you to have favor in God's eyes. So I obey God and I get cool things. I obey God and I get to marry up. I obey God and I get a great career. I obey God. I get a cool house. I obey God and no suffering happens in my life, right? Wrong. Wrong. You already have the favor of God. It's already given to you in Christ. It's already yours in Christ. And so now where does obedience come in? 
Well, let me show you. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, Paul is just seriously flipping out about the grace of God. And he's going off about how great the grace of God is. And unless you get the grace of God, you can't get anything else. But if you get the grace of God, you can go through suffering. You can go through obedience. You can go through anything if you get the grace of God. And this is how he says it. Therefore, verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. There's that word, justified. By faith, we have peace with God. The war is over. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, this is, this is a trip, okay? If you, get, if you get to the core, Christ's acceptance of you because of his finished work on the cross, if you get that to your very core, you can rejoice in sufferings. Now, this doesn't, who does, first of all, who does that? Who, when they suffer, like, you know what, praise God. No one, I think maybe two of you might in here. All the rest of us are lame. There's no way in the world that we do this. But how can we do this? You, know, you ever notice how we only praise God when we do a good job? Like someone says, hey, good job. We go, thanks, praise God. But when we do a bad job, like you're doing a bad job, we never go, you know what, praise God. No one does that. Why, and why can you rejoice? Even though when you, do, when you do a bad job, how can you rejoice? Can, can you praise God when you suffer and when you, frankly, when you suck? How can you praise God then? You can praise God that though you made a mistake, it doesn't change your righteousness in Christ. Your place is secure in him no matter what. You can praise God that you can learn and grow from your mistakes. That God is building and producing in you character and endurance, and hope. You can praise God that because Jesus has won, you are free to lose. That's, that's sometimes, we don't really get that. Like, I have to win everything. No, because Christ won, you're free to lose. Um, in his book, Surprised by Grace, Tulian Chavidian says this. When we understand that our significance and identity are in Christ, are in Christ, completely in him, we don't have to win free to lose. The gospel frees us from the pressure to generate our own significance and meaning. In Christ, our identity and significance are secure, which frees us up to give everything we have because in Christ, we have everything we need. If you're in Christ, you have everything you need. You have every hope Every desire, every longing is found in a true knowledge of Jesus. You must get that. You must drive that so deep within your soul that it becomes the truest thing about you. Um, we, we're not showing a identity video. It's actually going to be next week. We're going to plan on showing it this week, but uh, it'll be next week. And in there, we're interviewing um, a teacher that you're going to meet next week. And I'll kind of give you a little preview. There was this really great time, this, this, this um, moment when we were interviewing uh, this young man where he was talking about how he was at work, he wasn't performing the way he thought he should perform. And it was destroying him. 
day after day, destroying. He said what he had to do day after day after day after day is preach the gospel to himself, which means I'm not my job. I'm Christ's. I'm not the sum of what I produce. I belong to Jesus. I'm not this. I can keep moving forward, even though I might fail, even though I might not produce what I, what I really know I, I, I can produce. Grace. And then he said, the, the, he was a teacher, the principal, or his, his boss pulled him aside and was like, gave him high, he said, very, very, very high praise for some, something he did. He said, for the first time ever, I actually had to preach the gospel to myself when I won. Because I wanted to find my identity. And I am, yes, I do it. I am that. I am, I work so hard, I am that. He goes, I had to preach the gospel to myself and go, I'm not that. I'm not that. I'm Christ's. You have to drive the gospel, and this is, you have to drive the the fact that you are Christ's, and that you're secure in him, in every temptation, in every bit of loneliness, in every success, in every failure, in everything. You have to drive it deep. And I'm telling you, as someone who is trying to do this between services, I'm trying to do this between Sunday and Monday, I'm trying to do this as a as a young church planner who's just learning how this thing works, I'm, I'm trying to do this as well. You have to, and I have to drive this so deep in our hearts that it becomes the truest thing about you. That if you cut yourself open, so to speak, it would be Christ right down to the core. And your identity would be in him all the way down to the center. To where you can lose it all, but you won't lose Christ, and that's okay with you. Paul, um, and there's this portion in Acts when he stands before, um, I think it's Agrippa. And he's standing before Agrippa, and he was talking about all his sufferings. He's talking about all the things that he went through. And he says, even though, wait a minute, this might be, uh, I might be mixing up two stories. Anyways, I'll get my facts straight next week. Paul, I, or he was standing in for the elders, and I don't remember. He was doing something, but he has this phrase. He says, but he, he was mentioning all these things in his life that, that, um, all these, this being shipwrecked and, and being beaten and all these things for the sake of the gospel and everyone telling him to stop and stop proclaiming and stop preaching. And he says, none of these things move me. Like one of my favorite phrases. None of these things move me. Like I'm so secure in Christ and who I am in Jesus. I could be rejected, beaten, accepted, praised, s- starved, fed a really good meal, but none of them move me. I'm Christ's. You must drive this very, very deep in your heart. There is a, a moment in 2004 where in my life this came to me so vividly. Where at this point I had been a Christian for nine years. I had been on staff at a church as a pastor. I got saved in high school. And I had this, this moment where I... I started thinking about the righteousness of Christ and who Christ was, and I realized, and I know this is like a duh moment, but it was really profound to me, that Christ didn't love me. God never didn't, didn't love me any more nine years later than he did the very second I opened my heart to Jesus. I'm not any more righteous in his eyes than I was that very second. Even though my life had looked a little bit better and more clean, even though I've kind of, you know, like 
there was this sanctification that happened. I, I, I did certain things less. My position in Christ never changed. What had changed and what has changed since is how I understand the grace of God, how I understand my place in Christ, how I understand who Jesus is and who he is in my life. See, most of us, when we begin to follow Christ, we assume that there are a list of rules to follow. Okay, now, now we belong to Jesus. Now that there's these rules to follow, there, there are no rules to follow. There's a person to follow, Jesus. We follow Jesus. And we become like him when we look at, upon him. That's why Colossians and Hebrews tells us to look upon Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. Set our, our minds on Christ. Set our hearts on Christ. When we do that, we're changed. There's a transformation that happens in us. And that's how we change. That brings sustainable change. I can give you all these things. Don't do this and do this and don't. But it's not sustainable. The only thing that's sustainable is once you understand what Christ has done for you. And that that melts your heart. By believing what Christ has done and seeing that what you're doing is you're driving the truth of Jesus and your identity in Jesus to the core of who you are. You keep driving it in and in and in and deeper and deeper. By remembering over and over again, you're preaching the gospel to yourself, which means this, Christ is everything. He is my salvation and my life. And that's a free gift, not earned. I receive it by faith. And you drive that in, in, in. And you're preaching the gospel to yourself over and over and over again. Last year, when we were going, when we started our community groups, we started with this gospel packet. And in there, there was this quote. Identity is a complex set of layers for we are many things. Our occupation, ethnic identity, etc., are a part of who we are, but we assign different values to these components, meaning our job is a part of who we are, but we say it's everything that we are. Our desire might be part of who we are, but we make it everything, everything we are. These components, we assign different values to these components, and thus Christian maturing is the process, is a process in which the most fundamental layer of our identity becomes our self-understanding as a new creature in Christ. That becomes the core of who we are. That's where we find our life. That's where we find our identity in the fact that we're made new in Christ along with all of our privileges in him. See, this is what Colossians 3 talks about in seeking and setting. We seek the things that are above where Christ is and we set our mind on things that are above for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's what this means. You put your new identity to bear on your old identity. You must do this. There's this, this is a mental exercise, a meditation exercise. You must do this. Every time an old fear, an old past, an old coping mechanism, the way you cope with life, an old mechanism, the way that you might win over someone that you desire, that you like, that you want to whatever, Every time it's like, this is how I win them. This is how I make myself attractive. This is how I do this. This is how I swoop in on them, whatever. This is how I do it. What you do is you, that's your old way. You apply your new identity to that situation. Who are you in Christ? You're beloved. You're accepted. You're holy. You must apply your new identity and bring it to bear on your old identity. This is the only way.
way you can change to become more like Christ. And this is the posture that the scriptures take after you believe. It calls you to become who you are. A couple examples and we'll close. 1 Corinthians 6.18, a very obvious one. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. The sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Listen, now, it could stop there, like, just, hey, stop it. But it doesn't. It draws on who you are. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You are a new creation. And God lives in you. Whom you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. So glorify God in your body. See, that, doesn't, that, that command doesn't become how you're saved or not. That command is who you are. You belong to Christ. And men and women are God's creation. Another example. Colossians 3.19, do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, don't do that anymore. Stop, stop lying, defending yourself. You've put that old man off. Now you've put on the new self, which is being renewed. This new self of yours is in a process of being made more like Jesus in the knowledge after the image of its creator. You are being restored, recreated. You're in this process of realizing what's true about you. You see that? It's like you have all these things that, 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 that God has done in you, and then you're in this process of realizing it. So, here's how I'll close. You and I must repent. It's, it's, a, really, it's a really great biblical word. I don't know if you know about this word, repent. Repent of the things that you have over-identified with. Repent of the things that you've over-identified with. If you over-identified with companionship, which is very easy to do. If you over-identified with your career, if you over-identified with self-expression, passionate, like, I live in San Francisco and I can do whatever the heck I want, if you have over-identified with these things, repent. You're more than your desires. You are more than your past. You are more than your thoughts about yourself. You are more than your physical body. You're more than your behaviors. You're more than your stuff. You're more than your job. If you're a Christian, you once lived as a sinner, but now you've accepted Christ. You have his identity, and you have his worth as a person upon you, and you're secure in him. You can take off the old and put on the new. Jesus has given you a brand new identity. And now you're in this glorious process of discovering what that looks like. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the grace of God. For it was, If it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be crushed. We would all be crushed in here. There is no one righteous. No, not one. No one can stand before you. No one does good. No one seeks after God. No one. But the righteousness, the holiness, the rightness apart from the law has been revealed in Jesus Christ. We believe upon you. 
are saved and are transformed and are renewed. So Lord, I pray for this church. I, there's no way in the world that I'm standing up here, God, saying, be like me. I'm standing up here saying, be like Jesus. And so I repent of every good and wicked deed. My righteousness is found in you. I pray that you would make this church like you. Help us from self-righteousness, pride, but also help us from licentiousness and sin. I pray that this church would be the aroma of Jesus in San Francisco. Make us like that together, God.